0: Hello and welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice news from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Naherne. On this week's show, we delve into the universe of cli-fi, or climate change science fiction. We hear from novelists Alice Robinson and Naomi Oreskes. And later in the program, something that should be relegated to the world of fiction, but unfortunately is all too real. The duck shooting season has started again in Victoria, and so too has the campaign to stop it. We speak with Laurie Levy, longtime activist with the Coalition Against Duck Shooting.
1: are a loss to explain what is causing this weather and why it is by surprise. an hour
2: Mexican officials closed the border the
3: to go live to
2: what you see is happening now. Look over there behind me. That's a tornado.
4: a twister. This is just massive.
0: The sounds of a climate catastrophe as imagined in the Hollywood film The Day After Tomorrow. Cli-Fi is an emerging genre of fiction, taking as its starting point the drastic effects of human-caused climate change. Alice Robinson has just published her first novel, Anchor Point, and she spoke with John and Sue from 3CR's Monday Breakfast program about why we should take note of Cli-Fi.
5: I mean, it's still a developing kind of uh, genre, and it's probably quite a contested genre. It was interesting that you introduced me as a science fiction writer because uh, I would say that probably what I write is more literary fiction. Um, But, you know, all of these labels and categories are are blurred, really, especially when it comes to writing about the environment, I would say, because you're quite right that writing about sort of futuristic possibilities has been the realm of science fiction and, and genre versus literary writing mm. really um, but, but increasingly I think we'll see all kinds of writers tackling these issues and, and they should be tackling these issues because as you say it's, it's, it's the pressing issue of our time it's the most important thing in my opinion that we could be writing about
4: and uh, if we wanted to read some of these cli-fi writers you're, you're obviously part of a a growing tradition, who would some of them be that, that we could refer to?
5: Well there's two that I've, you'll probably mention that I'm, I'm speaking with tomorrow night at the Wheeler Centre Jane Rawson and um, James Bradley, um, but there's a, you know, a longer tradition, there's a wonderful novel by an Australian writer called George Turner called The Sea in Summer um, that isn't a recent novel at all, but it, it's set in Melbourne and it's um, dealing with a futuristic possibility you know, a dystopian future for our city. Um, but Margaret Atwood might be one of the other writers yeah. who's, who's writing this kind of thing. You know, imagining a future yes. um, post some kind of systemic breakdown. And, um, and
4: she certainly isn't. You wouldn't uh, describe her. I guess that the terms, as you say, science fiction is a bit of a blurred category. Right. Yeah. She is quite well known as a as a writer. Yes, yeah, a, a science, writer. Yes, not a science fiction writer. Interesting point. You've published your first novel, cli-fi novel, called Anchor Point. Could you tell us briefly about what... what briefly, yeah. without, without any spoilers...
5: <laughs> um, so, so my novel is um, a very Australian story. It's set in Victoria and a little bit in New South Wales, and it covers the, you know, four decades from the 80s, and the last uh, chapter is set in the very near future, in 2018. And it, it's essentially a story about a family. Um, there's a, a tragedy at the, sort of at the center of this family, and only the daughter, the main character, um, sort of holds the key to what's happened to her mother, who's, who's disappeared. Um, but these people are living on the land, and as the decades roll by, uh, despite their best efforts, and, and those efforts are changing with the decades, you know, so at, at, at times their best efforts to protect and look after the land are to do with farming. and, and um, farmers care very deeply about what happens to their places. Mm-hmm. But as time goes on, you know, the, the main character, Laura, the daughter, um, d- attempts other things as well. She tries to re- rehabilitate the, the land. So it's sort of looking at the ways that they look after the place, but as time goes on, it becomes sort of perhaps increasingly futile.
4: And this well. this is available now? We yeah, can it's in all good bookstores. All good bookstores, <laughs> as they say. And... Uh, for uh, For people who um, who read these kind of books and yours as well what what's your hope in in them reading it? Is there something mm. that you want them to end up thinking about or changing their behavior or their actions what what's your i
5: mean what? that would be the best case scenario i suppose that they, their behavior would change that that there's i mean this question of hope is at the center of, of my thinking now having written this book um, you know what that question, what does it mean? What can we achieve by, by writing fiction with what is essentially a, um, a scientific or a social a concern that 's um, across many other fields as well? You know what can fiction do and i don 't know to tell you the truth and, and that tension between hope and despair, um, I live with it every day. Can, can my writing make people change their behaviors? Can it save? the planet, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. That, I would love that if that was the case. But I, I think, and I've written about this before in, in non-fiction, that um, since writing the book, it took seven years to write. I started out very hopeful that that, that, that we could turn things around. But in that, that small space of time, um, you know, by all reports... We're, we're looking at mitigation now, or ad, adaptation, sorry, not mitigation, you know, we're, we're locked into a certain degree of change, mm, mm. no matter what we do. Um, and as the years go by, that will become probably increasingly the case. And that's a, that's a little bit of a hopeless position yes. to, to be facing. Yes,
4: yes. Look, that's, I mean, you've raised some really interesting, that's, that's really interesting stuff that you're dealing with, This this tension between optimism and and pessimism and the light and the dark, and
5: I like what? to call myself a reluctant pessimist. You know I don't want to feel that way. I'd, I'd like to think that there's hope, but I, I feel increasingly that that's perhaps not the case. Yeah There's a lot of uh, family about
2: family relationships in your novel, isn't there?:
5: Yeah, that yeah. sort of
2: mothers and daughters and the, the difficulties with that as well. Um, I don't know whether you want to
1: comment on that.
5: Well, I think um, in relation, that's absolutely the case. And I think in relation to the things that we're talking about, you know, um, climate change is a generational issue in the sense that you can't really think about it without thinking about what's come before. You know, how did we arrive here is the, the big question. And then where are we going in the future? So that kind of, on a personal scale, you might also look at that in those family relationships how how are we, why are we the people that we are, what, what's informed us in our families, our, our parents, and how are we going to pass on those lessons for better or worse to our children. So I was really interested in looking at those issues. You're right.
4: And um, just, uh, look, this is probably a, a, lo- a very long conversation that, <laughs> that, 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 that this question elicits, but as a writer, you have to, I suppose, reach a balance between... Being um, a storyteller, and you're writing a particular kind of fiction, so you'd also you want to be an activist in a way or a campaigner. Is that balance hard to hard to maintain?
5: It's really hard to maintain in fiction because nobody really wants to be taught a lesson when they're reading a novel. You know, in the sense, you know, it can't be too didactic. it, It can't be totally issues focused. That that. Finding that balance was extremely hard and that's probably why the book took a long time to write because um, as I went on and as I had readers, early readers, commenting, you know, that the climate changiness, if you like, had to keep getting pulled back and pulled back Mm -hmm. until it felt like it was very organic in the story, at least that's what I was hoping. Um, The people in the story really have to sit at the the front and centre of the narrative. And I think that's the big problem with writing about this issue, that um, as in our world, climate change has to keep getting pushed to the background, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but otherwise, the fiction doesn't quite work as a story. Lower Manhattan
3: is virtually inaccessible.
4: A wall of water coming towards New York City.
0: In their new book, *The Collapse of Western Civilization*, U.S. novelists Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway imagine a world post-climate catastrophe—a future they imagine not too distant from now. Here, Naomi reads an extract from the book. A Chinese historian in the year 2393 recounts how everything started to collapse.
1: By 2040, heat waves and droughts were the norm. Control measures such as water and food rationing and Malthusian one-child policies were widely implemented. In wealthy countries, the most hurricane and tornado-prone regions were gradually but steadily depopulated, putting increased social pressure on areas less subject to those hazards. In poor nations, conditions were predictably worse. Rural portions of Africa and Asia began experiencing significant depopulation from out-migration, malnutrition-induced disease and infertility, and starvation. Still, sea level rise had only risen 9 to 15 centimeters around the globe, and coastal populations were mainly intact. Then, in the Northern Hemisphere summer of 2041, unprecedented heat waves scorched the planet, destroying food crops around the globe. Panic ensued, with food riots in virtually every major city. Mass migration of undernourished and dehydrated individuals coupled with explosive increases in insect populations, led to widespread outbreaks of typhus, cholera, dengue fever, yellow fever, and viral and retroviral agents never before seen. Surging insect populations destroyed huge swaths of forests in Canada, Indonesia, and Brazil. As social order began to break down in the 2050s, governments were overthrown, particularly in Africa, but also in many parts of Asia and Europe, further decreasing social capacity to deal with increasingly desperate populations. As the great North American desert surged north and east, consuming the high plains and destroying some of the world's most productive farmland, the U.S. government declared martial law to prevent food riots and looting. A few years later, the United States announced plans with Canada for the two nations to begin negotiations towards the creation of the United States of North America to develop an orderly plan for resource-sharing, and northward population relocation. The European Union announced similar plans for voluntary northward relocation of eligible citizens from its southernmost regions to Scandinavia and the United Kingdom. That audio was courtesy of WBUR Radio
0: in Boston. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network and from an imagined future to an all-too-real present. The duck shooting season has started again in Victoria, and so too has the campaign to stop it. Jan Bartlett, from 3CR's Tuesday Home Time, spoke with Laurie Levy, longtime activist with the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. Laurie joins Jan on the phone, fresh from a protest at the front of the Victorian State Parliament.
2: Laurie, I'd imagine it would have been a very harrowing weekend for you and the rescuers. And another harrowing time at Parliament House today.
3: Yes, we displayed 100 uh, uh, native water birds which had been gunned down by duck shooters over the weekend and those birds included threatened freckle ducks, threatened bluebill ducks, swan, which are fully protected and a lot of other protected species as well as a lot of game species which had been shot and just left on the water by shooters.
2: Do any of the parliamentarians come out to see you?
3: No, in fact, there's a line of police across the front door of the Premier's uh, office building. You know, we take the birds there because it's politicians who sanction the slaughter, but they refuse to go to the wetlands to see uh, the cruelty and the violence that's inflicted on native water birds So we take the victims to the politicians.
2: What was it like at the weekend? Worse, better than any other time?
3: Well, most of northwest Victoria was dry and the two wetlands that did have water had been artificially filled to encourage birds onto those uh, wetlands for the shooters. This, This is a form of canned hunting. And of course the brutality that we saw out there were absolutely shocking. Uh, a number of our rescuers were deeply affected, traumatised by what the, they saw. We, and we anticipated that and we had a counsellor with us. We had a, a doctor and an AMBO just in case of emergencies and a number of our rescuers, it was a very cold day and a, and a very cold wind blowing and a number of our rescuers came down with hypothermia uh, and they were treated by the AMBO and the the doctor there. You see all these beautiful birds take off when the guns go off. Suddenly shooters are firing all over the place and birds start coming down and you know when rescuers get to those birds the horrific injuries and the cruelty and the birds are often still alive. They're dying but they're still alive and for new rescuers especially uh, and rescuers are sensitive people. And that's why they're out there. They're out there to help those birds. But for new rescuers, it's traumatic. It's upsetting. We all feel that. It's just that we've got to keep going because if we're not there, the government doesn't put anyone out there to to help birds. There are no government mobile veterinary clinics. So we've got to do that job. We've been doing it for 30 years. The fines for rescuers have just been increased to $886.00. So all those rescuers who brave the guns by going into the water to help wounded birds on the weekend will most likely all be fined $886 for caring.
2: What happens when you go out onto the water to rescue these birds?
3: Well, we go out onto the water and uh, uh, obviously we wear bright colours, fluoro jackets and the the range of a shotgun is only about 50 to 80 metres and the birds have to come into range before being shot. And when the birds can see rescuers, they'll keep out of shotgun range. Hunters wear camo gear, they're hard to see on the water, and birds can't often see them where they can see our rescuers, and that will help them keep out of uh, shotgun range and be safe. But the birds that are hit, of course, Suffer immensely. A lot of shooters don't even bother to pick up wounded birds. It's a trying time for the vets we have in our mobile veterinary clinic because they're on the go most of the day, in fact, all of the day, trying to cope with the flood of victims coming in.
2: Were the children there when you were there at the weekend with their parents or relatives?
3: Yes, there are also young kids of probably seven or eight out there with their fathers actually on the water which they shouldn't be but I don't see any of them getting booked of course and some of the kids looked terrified when all the guns were going off. I I just find it hard to understand how a modern day Labor Daniel Andrews government can support this shocking gun violence and cruelty to native water birds. I mean Duck shooting is an activity that belongs in the 1950s. The fact that a modern-day Labor government in Victoria can support this level of violence and cruelty is, is just amazing. I, I just don't understand it.
2: And just in case people might think that the, the duck slaughter is over at the weekend, it goes on for how many weeks?
3: Yes, it goes on for three months. And, you know, this has been an extremely dry year. Uh, Professor Richard Kingsford conducted his aerial surveys and Professor Richard Kingsford works for the University of New South Wales and has been doing aerial surveys counting water birds since 1983. And Professor Kingsford's latest report for this year said that water bird numbers were down by 60% from what they were in 1983 and that the so-called game birds that shooters are allowed to go after, were hardly breeding. But yet the same conditions applied in 2007 and 2008 when the then Labor government banned shooting for two years. But this government, the Andrews government, gave duck shooters a full season, except after the opening weekend where most of the birds are shot anyway, he dropped the bag limit to to five a day. But, of course, uh, shooters will just say that they can get over that by going out more times during the year.
2: And shut a couple of wetlands that will dry anyway.
3: Down near Hamilton, there were brolgas on bulrush Swamp and, of course, the local field naturalist down at Hamilton wanted the wetland closed, and rightly so. There were 40 brolgas, and that was, I think, a third of the population that's in Victoria and then the government refused to close Bullrush and they said they were closing Krauss Swamp, which is really next door, to give the birds a a sanctuary to go to when the shooting started. But as the field Nats pointed out, Krauss Swamp has been completely and bone dry for quite some time now. So both ministers, Jala Pulford and Lisa Neville, put their names to a public notice in the Herald Sun closing off a dry wetland that had no water, no birds, to shooting. It's crazy.
2: Do you get the chance to speak with local people in the area to find out how they feel about these people coming in and shooting up wildlife?
3: We're getting a lot of support from regional Victoria. We get farmers ringing up saying that there are birds on their wetland or dam that's very close by and can we come up and help keep shooters off them? Uh, I know the residents uh, around Cancurran Curran Reservoir, which is between Bendigo and Ballarat, have been fighting their own campaign to keep duck shooters off Cancurran, And they've been putting out media releases. They were talking to the ABC in Bendigo and they had an article in the Bendigo Advertiser. Simply local people in country regions now are fighting their own battles to keep duck shooters off their wetlands and even at Lake Buloke, you know, when it had water in 2011-12, landowners around Oak are now going public saying they don't want duck shooters on their properties around Oak. So it's all changing. You know, our success over the years in reducing the numbers of duck shooters from 100,000 to about 23,000 today, where they make up only 0.4% of Victoria's population, our set success has come through the public. Victorians don't want duck shooting, but we still haven't been able to get to either the Liberal Party or the Labor Party, and it's surprising that Labor Party politicians don't even address cruelty issues, or even when you bring out a 100 illegally shot threatened species, they just don't talk about the issue. The only comment they make to the public or to the media is that duck shooting is a legal recreational activity. Well, as politicians, they have the opportunity to make it an illegal activity, the same way Western Australia did in 1990, some 25 years ago, New South Wales in 1995, and Queensland in 2005. And, of course, Peter Beattie banned duck shooting in Queensland when he was Premier, saying that Queensland is now the smart state for looking after its water birds and Victoria is lagging a long way behind the Queensland government.
2: Do you get a chance to have a look at these shooters and and just gauge whether they're the old shooters or are these young people coming
3: on? Really it's the older shooter. I think it's a generational thing. Duck shooting is, is definitely dying. There's no doubt about that. You know, in the Early days of duck shooting, when we used to go out to the wetlands in 1989, would go to Lake oak Lake oak would get 10 to 15,000 duck shooters on the opening morning. Well, when Oak refilled again in uh, 2011, shooters were putting out notices that they were giving away tens of thousands of dollars in prize money, and that was Field and Game Australia, to try and encourage shooters to bullock. And on the day of the 2011 duck shooting season, there were only 400 duck shooters there, not the old 10 to 15,000, and the same again in 2012. But that just highlighted to us how duck shooting has reached its end. But those duck shooters who are there will keep going until the government bans the activity forever
5: what
2: was the circumstances of your arrest
3: i was fined $886 for being on the water to start with but while i was out on the water and a number of rescuers were running and being chased by a compliance officer in a homemade hunter canoe or, or a kayak or whatever you want to call it but he was screaming out to them to stop one of them had a wounded bird I knew that if he had have stopped them, he would have confiscated the bird and killed it. And the worst thing that can happen to a rescuer, if you want to hurt a rescuer, you take a wounded bird off them and, you know, that's the thing that hurts the most because they feel totally responsible for that bird's safety. This compliance officer was chasing the rescuers. The rescuers went past me and as the compliance officer came past me, I just grabbed onto his kayak and held him and he was screaming at me to let go and I dragged the kayak into shore and uh, he couldn't stand up and do anything about it because he would have fallen out of it but he called on his uh, his other compliance officers to arrest me and uh, I was marched back to the police caravan, did an interview and it looks like I'll be charged with obstructing a compliance officer in the course of his duty.
2: What does it take out of you every year, Laurie? I think it's number 29, isn't it? 1986?
3: Um, Yes, 29 years. And it's exhausting. It it really is. And I guess the older uh, you get, the harder it gets on the body, I can tell you. But it's one of those things that we have to do it. and, And we can't walk away from it. Because if we walked away, there'd be nobody to help those birds there'd be nobody to witness the illegal shooting of threatened species the government pours millions of dollars still into millions of taxpayers dollars into the shooters into looking after them and nothing absolutely not a single cent into looking after our native water birds so we just have to keep doing this job until duck shooting is banned in this state
2: and you need help to pay the fines
3: Uh, Yes, we we need a lot of help. I I mean, the most wonderful thing going in, you know, we told rescuers well before the opening morning that they could face an $886 fine for going in and not one pulled out. They all went into the water. uh, They all were prepared to face those fines. And as they said, if we don't do this job, nobody else will. Laurie
0: Levy from the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Naherne. If you missed any of today's program, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Thank you also to John Langer, Jan Bartlett, and WBUR Boston for the audio used in today's show. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. Sí, sí, sí. sí, sí.